I was Prime Minister when the Islamic State, ISIS, was at its height, both in Syria and Iraq, and in terrorist actions around the world. This Islamist terrorist ideology was winning converts here in Australia. In fact, over 200 Australians, radicalised at home, made their way to Syria and Iraq to fight with ISIS and other militant groups. Our domestic security agency, ASIO, was managing around 400 high-priority counter-terrorism investigations. This radicalisation process was almost exclusively happening online, and it was happening fast. At the time, we were overwhelmingly focused on preventing a terrorist attack within Australia. We wondered how young middle-class kids with no particular history of disadvantage could be sucked into a terrorist cause, and we did not sufficiently recognise that a climate of anger, lies and misinformation propagated online was able to radicalise people of all backgrounds and all ages. The mob that stormed the US Capitol on January 6, 2021, looked like a broad cross-section of American society. There were business people, doctors, lawyers, teachers, police officers, public servants, and yet they were all sucked into a narrative of anger, lies, and conspiracy theories to the extent that they tried to violently overthrow their own government. Now, we shouldn't have needed reminding that all this is possible. History is full of examples, but few of us are immune to the toxic influence of angry, hate-filled lies and propaganda. I've spent the last couple of days going back and rereading, you know, Mein Kampf and some of the speeches made in the 30s and uh, early 40s by Adolf Hitler and, and the Nazi party. And the language is not that much different than what we're seeing today. That's John Cohen. He served as the Acting Undersecretary for Intelligence and Analysis and Counterterrorism Coordinator for the United States Department of Homeland Security. John, so good to talk to you today and, uh, and to see you, of course. You're now saying that America is facing the most dangerous and complex threat environment you've ever seen in your career. Yeah, I mean, it's really great to be with you having this conversation. And I think it's an important conversation because while your question asked me about the U.S. threat environment, I think what we're beginning to see is that the dynamics of the threat that we are experiencing here are beginning to uh, occur or be present in other parts of the world, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada. So conversations like this are really important. 9-11, of course, was a was a shocking attack. I mean, thousands of people were killed. It, it did change the world and the consequences we're still living with. Uh, but it was seen as an external threat and it was one which united Americans uh, to take on that threat. January 6th, the assault on the Capitol on January 6th was was internal. Uh, it was egged on by the, the, pre- the, the president, President Trump, who only had a few days left in his presidency and was trying to hang on to it. And the insurgents looked like pretty wide cross-section of uh, everyday Americans. Um, 
it as an attack on your democracy, on democracy in general, I would say, it, uh, it, it served rather than uniting the country to underline the divisions in it. Some Trump supporters have also increased calls for a civil war. The threat that we face today and the threat that was illustrated by the January 6th uh, attack is one that's based on the divisions of our society. So while on the one hand, the attack against America on 9-11 brought us together, the reason why we had a January 6th is because the divisions in our society and some who some could argue that they've existed for generations were exploited by not only foreign entities, but domestic voices. And that led to the attack that I would argue probably represented the, represents the greatest threat to our uh, republic since the Civil War. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Nancy Pelosi speaking on camera for the first time since the attack on her husband, Paul Pelosi. She said, quote, there is no question that our democracy is on the ballot. It's a threat that's fueled in large part by online content that's very often placed there by foreign intelligence services, foreign terrorist groups, domestic violent extremists. Uh, and it is a threat that in many respects feeds on the angry, polarized nature uh, of our political discourse. Uh, and I think what concerns me the most is that our counterterrorism capabilities, as robust as they are, uh, and as effective as they have been in stopping terrorist attacks by Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, weren't designed to deal with this threat. John, years ago, David Cameron, uh, then the Prime Minister of the UK, gave a very good speech in Birmingham about extremism and hate speech. And he sort of made the point that there's a continuum. You start off saying that you disagree with somebody, then you, you know, then you critique their ideas or their religion or their values. And the further you go down that continuum of denigration and hatred, the more likely it is that it will end up in violence. I mean, it is a bit like calling out fire in a crowded theatre. It may be that most people on hearing fire called out move steadily and soberly to the exits, taking care not to panic, but there will be some people who do panic and trample over others and obviously casualties ensue. And so the animosity that appears to be sort of incited uh, in the political discourse and in the media in particular that troubles me the most. You know, the amplification of lies like that is a bit like crying out fire in a crowded theatre. You know, you're not actually asking people to go and commit acts of violence, but you are revving them up in a way where that is almost inevitable. You raise an intriguing point. I mean, as I look at this from a law enforcement perspective, and I'm often asked, what are the factors that make this threat different than what you've experienced over the past four, you know, almost four decades? I think one, 
it's there seems to be a, a growing number of people in our society who believe that anger is an appropriate way to express one's discontent with their personal situation, their anger at government, their disagreement uh, with others uh, regarding politics or political or public policy issues, or, or even communicate their own anger at uh, they're, uh, you know, directed at a person or an entity that they have a grievance with. So that's one factor. Second, we are such a polarized and angry nation. You know, I can remember a time where I, we could have passionate disagreements with, with our neighbors or people we worked with, but still go out and have dinner and have drinks and maintain a friendship. That's increasingly different, difficult in this country. Uh, more and more people tend to view those who disagree, those from different political parties, not just as people who disagree with us, but as the enemy. We call people traitors. We call people the enemy of the state. Um, third, we have a media and online e ecosystem that is just saturated with conspiracy theories and other content that's specifically placed there to, as you put it, not just sow discord and exacerbate the, the fractures in our society, but to actually inspire violence. I know there's a lot of discussions about free speech versus threat-related activity, but you know, when you have a 200-page manifesto that describes not only why elected officials and members of the government and police officers and people from certain faith committees should communities should be killed, but also provides guidance on how to do it. I think it's pretty clear from a law enforcement perspective, that's not someone just exercising their constitutional right to speech. And, and, and you know, finally, the availability of weapons. Those are really the four factors that make this threat environment, from my perspective, so different and quite frankly, so much more dangerous. I mean, we don't even agree on what's a threat in this country. That's how polarized it is. If a government can't agree on what the threat is, countering it becomes impossible. In April last year, the Department of Homeland Security announced the creation of the first disinformation governance board with the stated goal, quote, to coordinate countering misinformation related to homeland security. Nina Jankovic was selected to head the new governance board. She'd advised Ukraine and led investigations into foreign influence, including Russian disinformation operations. But within hours of her announcement, Nina herself became the target of a massive disinformation campaign. This is Orwellian. This is a ministry of truth. And the person they've appointed is a Democrat propagandist. She pushed the uh, Russian collusion with the Trump campaign hoax. It's the Disinformation Governance Board, or DGB, in honor of AGB, because that's what it is. It's the oh. Thought Police. Right. So, so what happened? <laughs> oh, it's a long and sordid tale. So, um, the the governance board was announced uh, in a 
somewhat opaque statement in Politico, um, which has kind of a reputation for being a little bit gossipy here in Washington. Um, and it announced me as executive director and there was no other detail released. This is not how I personally wanted to announce the board, but it was a decision made above my pay grade. And within hours, conspiracy theorists online decided that the disinformation governance board, far from being this kind of anodyne, rather boring uh, coordination mechanism, was actually an Orwellian ministry of truth. And I was a disinformation czar. I was big sister. In fact, the New York Post put me on the cover of uh, one of its issues saying, big, big sister is washing you. We didn't put out anything about what the board was actually meant to do. And so these conspiracy theories filled the vac vacuum. And not only did conspiracy theories fill the vacuum, um, there were a lot of threats and harassment against me and my family that still continue to this day, actually. Uh, and at the time, I was um, just a few weeks away from giving birth to my first child. Um, there were people, you know, threatening me in sexual ways. There were people threatening me and my family. We were doxxed, meaning that our um, our home address and other personal information was released on the internet. Um, and uh, as a result, the Biden administration eventually decided to pause the board. And I felt that I could do work that was more impactful outside of government. And that was a really sad moment for me because, uh, you know, for seven years I had been advocating for the U.S. government to become more active on this issue. And when it came down to it, the most predictable, um, kind of least imaginative disinformation campaign about a response to disinformation is, is what brought, um, brought the board down. And so, um, we're in a situation now where the board is likely to be uh, brought up in the 118th Congress, which was just sworn in. And um, and uh, I am likely to be called up to testify by Republicans to talk about my 10 weeks of government service in which nothing interesting happened. I can I can assure them of that. Um, and it's totally been politicized. And this is my life now. I, I uh, actually just took out a restraining order this week against one of my online abusers. The harassment against you was was very heavily gendered. Can you just sort of expand a bit on that? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, or perhaps ironically, a lot of the work that I've done, um, in addition to my work on kind of Russian disinformation, has been about gendered disinformation. Uh, and that's exactly what came after me, gendered abuse and disinformation. And um, it all, uh, I, I would say a large majority of it um, is grounded in, in gendered language. Um, so words I can't repeat on our, our, our conversation. No, you um, feel free to. You certainly can, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Well, uh, so everything from, you know, simple stuff like like the word bitch to, um, you know, treasonous cunt um, mm. and worse things. You know, um, recently a man said that I should be uh, hung for treason and or tried for treason and hung until I'm dead. Online abuse isn't always something that happens exclusively online. Nina's experience illustrated what can be a very harmful relationship between online abuse in social media and mainstream media itself. It's been almost eight months since I resigned and there have only been four or six weeks where they haven't mentioned me on air. And when they mention me every time, it's, it's things like disinfo diva, um, you know, the bimbo, Nina Jankowitz, uh, they were the ones who talked about, of course, my pregnancy. Um, they're the ones who, who think I'm crazy. They say unhinged. 
um, which of course is a gendered a gendered description as well. We don't really talk about men being unhinged. It's always the crazy hysterical women, right? Mm. Um, and uh, every time I'm on Fox News, I tend to get a wave of harassment on social media. It goes from from offline, from mainstream media to to online. Um, and I think it also bears mentioning, you know, there are people in Congress who make it um, their job basically to mention me frequently because they think it, and, and rightly, they, they're probably right, that it scores them points with their constituents. Um, they, they see me as a scalp. Yeah, so this is where the, this is really an angertainment complex. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. People love it. We have seen so much online radicalization happening lately. This man who attacked um, Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer in the middle of the night was was radicalized by by violence on, online and had, you know, been a, a subscriber to QAnon. Yes, and it's exactly the same track as you saw with uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, yes, so that yeah. the the online radicalization takes people down a slippery slope from you know hate to you know, threats to actually, with a minority, to be true, but nonetheless, uh, a minority who will actually carry these threats out. So, so in other words, disinformation and uh, lies and abuse online making our society more angry, more divided, and leading people into not simply mistaken decisions about politics and public life, but leading them into acts of real kinetic violence. Absolutely. And that's what makes it so scary as someone receiving these threats. So, so John, what, what's the, what is the answer? I mean, in the, is there a, uh, like a consensus or any degree of support for some measures in the United States to address this? I don't see it yet. I think we're still in too much of a polarized state right now politically uh, for there to be meaningful discussions on this. I guess the answer to your question, and you know, this is going to sound horrible, but I and it's or dep- and depressing, uh, but maybe enough people haven't died yet. Well, it's, there's no easy solution, unfortunately. Um, I think everybody always wants a panacea or you know, wave the magic wand and implement this regulation, and things will change. But um, it is a societal problem, so it requires a whole of society solution. And I always start with education, which is the um, perhaps one of the easier things to deal with, but one of the things that takes the longest to uh, to bear fruit. So we need to um, educate people not only about media and information literacy, and you know why certain information ends up in your feed, and who's controlling uh, the different media outlets and what their stakes in these political battles are. But we also need to educate them about um, the democratic process, about how votes are counted, about how primary elections work um, in the United States, about, you know, how the electoral college works. These things that people have, you know, found reason to conspiracize about um, are actually pretty mundane and boring when you look at that process. And that's why I think, you know, the more we get people involved with um, being election officers at their local elections or uh, getting involved in, in local campaigns, um, that will kind of take a lot of the, uh, the lift that those conspiracy theories have out from under them. I agree with you. I mean, transparency and truth builds trust. Yes, Absolutely. Three T's. Yeah. I like it. Um, <laughs> Good. It's yours. And then, uh, <laughs> then we have, you know, the importance of regulation. And I think 
Um, this is somewhere where Australia is, is really uh, leading the way. And I, I think really interesting work being done by the e-safety commissioner, who I know um, you originally appointed, uh, Julian Min Grant, uh, just doing uh, really difficult yeoman's work of uh, trying to shed light on the terrible stuff that's happening on the internet and hold the social media platforms to account. I would love to see more countries doing that. What, what's the scenario that, that would keep you up at night about the 24 presidential election year? Um, I... I have spent my entire career looking at worst case scenarios and what would concern me the most about the 2024 election is an even more aggressive effort by foreign hostile powers, you know, Russia and Iran in particular, um, uh, terrorist groups and extremists uh, expanding their efforts to uh, inspire violence uh, prior to the 2024 election. Uh, I'm a little hopeful and maybe overly so uh, that the 2020 election at least provides a spark um, for those in elected politics um, to push back at the use of some of these or the mimicking of these extremist narratives. Uh, but my, what would keep me up at night is if those forces um, lose the battle. Uh, and we see uh, an aggressive effort by candidates to promote um, these same conspiracy theories going into 2024. Uh, people tend to talk about January 6th like it was the end um, of something. It wasn't. You know, when lies are rewarded, that's the basic foundational problem of our information ecosystem. And when your information ecosystem is corrupted, nothing else can be pristine. That's Nobel Peace Prize winner and author of How to Stand Up to a Dictator, Maria Ressa. She joins me next on the podcast. podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika. Listener.